Welcome to Living in a Material World. I'm your host, David Prada. Today's guest is Agnes Badu. She is a legend with her fabulous bags and accessories, but we're going to talk about her and her journey here and how she made it this far and so successful with her designs and all the work she does in the industry. Agnes, welcome to our show. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. Can you tell all of our listeners, like, how did you start? Because for me, I remember meeting you when I first started my showroom here in L.A. I had just moved here from New York, and I think it was in 2010 or 11, I must have met you. And you were creating these amazing, like, lotions and potions. And I remember there were just, like, different sprays. And that's kind of how, at first, I met you. And then I saw that you were creating these bags. But before all this happened, where were you and how did you get here? Well, I started my professional journey as a fashion stylist. I worked for fashion magazines and I started at Elle and then worked at a lot of Condé Nast magazines and in New York and then moved to Paris and moved back to New York. And then I came to L.A. where there wasn't a lot of fashion like that at the time. There were certainly stylists, but there weren't that many showrooms. There weren't a lot of editorial stylists in L.A. So I sort of went against the grain. There were too many in New York and there weren't a lot here. So I came to L.A. and I was able to work with a lot of the fashion photographers that I knew from New York and Europe and L.A. and do a lot of commercial work in L.A. as well. And as I grew in that, I always liked making things and I always used to make lotions and potions for my friends. I liked simpler ingredients. So I was always finding like the plainest lotion that had nothing in it and then adding essential oils to it. And, you know, I had certain memory scent commercial fragrances, but in general, I never really liked the frequency of them, but they might've been just something nostalgic. Like I like Chanel 19. I like Diorissimo, you know, like there were certain things like that, but otherwise it was stuff I would get from either the health food store or there used to be a place in the West village where you could get like dry potpourri and essential oils in bulk. And I would make up my lotions and things as stocking stuffers for my friends. And then as I started traveling a lot more when I was styling, you know, at first you're excited to travel and that's why you get into it and you love to see the world. And then the more you travel, the more I found, like the more anxieties I would get about it, just because it's a little bit unnatural to be in the air that much. And you'd get off healthy and then someone would sneeze in the back and you were sneezing. So I developed this aromatherapy spray that had colloidal silver and a little bit of oil of oregano and then a blend of essential oils that were meant to help protect you from germs, but also relax you on the plane. And they were super mild, but super effective. And that was around that time I had a friend that had a shop in Los Angeles. So I was giving them to people as presents. And then she told me if I standardized them, that she would sell them in her store. So I created that line. I think the first one was number 11. I had a three, six, and nine. And they had different scent profiles. But the foundation of them was like a distilled water, colloidal silver, anti-germ fighting, relaxing profile. Wow. So you're before all the time of like the future you were thinking ahead of all the needs that we needed to have in our bags. Who knew it was going to get like that? Yeah, it was just, I mean, it was just bad enough that, you know, it was canned controlled air in the planes. And that's how I sort of started to expand what I was doing. I was expanding my styling business with things I was interested in naturally. And then that sort of grew 
and that's how we met. And so I was doing that at the Echo Park Craft Fair, and I was selling to small boutiques and doing stuff at like on One King's Lane and First Dibs. And, you know, it was still like the era of blogs and blog commerce, and it was kind of exciting. And then I had a bag that had belonged to my mom that I had reconfigured because I never really liked the shape to begin with. It was very tall and had long straps and I didn't like that. And I cut it down and made it more square. And then by that point it was over 40 years old and it was falling apart. And I used it on my desktop to collect all my bills. And one day I was doing my taxes and I looked at the bag and I was like, Oh, I think I just need to make this. And so I went and I started to research how I could make them. And that was how I launched my bag collection with one bag. You know, everywhere I go, I see someone like with a different color. Like I saw over the summer in the Hamptons, somebody with a white one. Then I made my way to Europe and I saw one with a, I don't know what the natural one is. Like, I love that natural. That's natural veggie tan. So that's the first, that's like the signature material, natural veggie tan. And when I launched the business, I didn't want to be known as like a lady purse designer, you know, because it's like you can't unring that bell. So I made that size, the small size, and then I made the larger size. And then I also made something that my parents and my grandparents always had, which was the key case. And so when I started my website, I had three leather goods that I thought would encompass like everybody. So, like, Cholito has some bag. You know, like, I wanted it for everybody. Well, I just saw his dom yeah. kit. I just saw this dom kit he has. We're out in the desert, and he put his next to mine. I was like, oh, I need to get my dom kit game going. <laughs> There's going to be dom kits. As I grew, I was like, what do I need next? I love my totes, but I want to be hands-free. So then I made a crossbody. Then I was like, oh, I need something smaller hands-free. Then I made a belt sack. And, you know, it's really supposed to be, like, functional and practical and have a long, long life. Like look beautiful the older it gets, you take it out of rotation, you get a different color. Yeah, Cholito I think has every single, he has a blue one, he has so many different colors. And I actually have bought a few of my sales managers your bags, because I think they're the perfect size bag when you travel, your crossbody. Because that crossbody is so great, like it's such a good bag. That with the tote, oh, so chic. Thank you. Well, no, it's the perfect plane situation because you can keep all of your like boarding pass and ID close to your body. And then when you get on the plane, then you can put everything away and the sacks fit above the overhead. They stand up. So, you know, I try them out. I saw Cholito with two of your totes. He had both of your bags, one, two different colors and one in each hand. And I was like... Cholito and Chris together. It's like they carry the entire collection with them. It's so beautiful. And I love that, though, because people, you know, they use them. They like them, you know, and they wear well. So, like, it's a great investment. And people feel really sentimental about them as well. Like, which is, speaking of material and material, it's a quality that I liked in fashion. And it's something that drew me to make the bag to begin with, which is the material and the vibration of the material. Like it's something that you want to have. You might even put like a narrative to it or an experience, or I took this on this trip, or I carried this on this occasion. And when you leave it around your house, you look at it. I'm a sentimental person. So I attribute those kinds of things to the things that I spend money on or the things that I acquire or the things that people give me. And so I'm very honored that people have that feeling too. 
I'm also a very sentimentalist the way I decorate and do everything in my life. When I buy a bag or when I look at bags, I look at something that you can pass on to the next generation. And that's what I love about your bags, that it'll be passed on from generation to generation. And I also think they look flawless as a piece of working your living room or family room with the things in them and how you were saying you're collecting your bills with your mom's bag. It's such a gorgeous piece to put things in and just leave in the corner and just looks good no matter what, how you use it. So congratulations on such a successful brand and not to mention your name is perfect for a brand. So it's like, it was meant to be. <laughs> so from creating your first bag, when did you realize that you had created like a cult iconic bag that any cool person that I know owns one. So this is something that you like speaks to the designer. And I think when you said vibrations, like you speak about vibration, I think everyone I know that has one exudes vibrational. So I think they all interconnect with one another. Like I was with Allison from Wonder Valley. She has one. She has a few of your bags. And I see everywhere I go, I'm like, oh, I, that's why I haven't seen you in years, but I feel like I see you every day. I see your bag on someone, like, walking across the street, and it's so beautiful to see that, your beautiful work. Well, thank you. I think part of the trajectory, I say, uh, from business, from a business point of view, is because I was a stylist. Like, I was a professional consumer, right? And I am a person that's a consumer. So I had a very strong opinion about my path in the marketplace because I made my business as I was my own best customer. Like the world doesn't need what I'm offering per se. So you have to want it and find a need for it. And that's the kind of shopper I am. You know, I'm kind of a deliberate, like, is it a good quality? Is it the right money for the value? And will I use it? Or, you know, and if it's not, it's fine too, but I'm thoughtful about those kinds of things. And so when you shop for a living at a certain point, you have access to all kinds of stuff and you know what you would and would not pay even when you're buying it on someone else's dime. That aspect of the business, by the time I was making my own stuff, it was probably the only part of the consumer cycle I hadn't been part of because I was, I purchased, I was a shopper, I was a promoter, I was an advertiser. And then manufacturing is where you understand the actual the material and the value of the material and the supply chain and the quality of labor and the value of labor so then you put all that together with the other experiences and you decide what your value is you know like do i want to make a gazillion super cheap and just see them everywhere that's a business model it's fine or do i want to make something that's more artisanal and more collectible that has a higher, a bigger wattage and a longer. I mean, that's the kind of customer I am. That's the kind of consumer I am. So I felt like that would be authentic for me as a maker to do something I believed in or do it in the way that I believed in. You know, like I can't think of something I would want to mass produce. As a consumer, a lot of the things, the way I spend my money is a, is a little bit more intimate. Because I wasn't getting huge funding to start a large scale, I used what was my disadvantage to my advantage. I like to buy stuff that was close to one of a kind or that was limited. I would say like even when I was styling, I knew that there were certain places that had Missoni, but they didn't all have the same or certain places that had Margiela and they didn't all have the same one. And you'd have to go to Mameg for this one or you could go around to find the thing that you liked and you knew that everyone didn't have it. They might have a different version of it, but they didn't have that because not every store had it. 
And also, I think we all came up in a time when there were things called destination purchases before you could buy everything on the internet. And before there were a lot of multi-brand stores, you know, there was a time you could only get diptyque at Saint-Germain or at Barney's, period. That was also kind of informing my way of selling because I couldn't create a lot anyway. So it made it a destination purchase. I guess that's how it happened. Like, I love that you said that because like I was a destination shopper because I would go into the city from the suburbs into New York because I was in musical theater and everybody told me about Makeup Forever and you would have to go Makeup Forever and you would have to go into Barney's. And Barney's didn't have a Madison Avenue location at the time. It was in Chelsea. And so I'd go to Chelsea to buy it because it was known they had this foundation that lifted at the same time. And it was like incredible for stage makeup. So like when I was younger, I was in theater and in arts. And like, so we'd go in and we had everything was a destination experience. Do you remember Il Maquillage? Yes. Oh. Right? You know what I mean? Like there's certain places, you know, like that one was like off park between park and Lexington or something. Like there was certain, you had to go there. Like there was a Capizio's, it was on McDougal. You would go to these places and part of the experience, and it wasn't about the cost, it was just the experience, going to the different neighborhood, seeing where it was, talking to the salesperson. You know, so those things also add the value to the, like experience adds value to what you're doing, you know, so you might've been buying this makeup, but like the adventure of going to the city and what were you going to do before and after and, you know, all of that. Oh yeah. Before and after my friend Billy and I would go in and then we'd go to Soho and have drinks with Willie Ninja who created Vogue. So like, and so we would go hang out with him and I'd be like, wow, I need to move to New York. I need to get here. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the city. I'm in the city. I don't want to leave. Yeah, it means so much. You know, you want to have those experiences and share those experiences. I had my Auntie Mame growing up, and she was my parents' customer. My parents had a restaurant, so she came into my parents' restaurant, and she was an auctioneer. She had such impeccable taste. And so she would actually take me with her, borrow me at like 10 or 12 years old, and we'd go into the city And she'd get there within an hour and a half so fast. And then we just like, it was an experience. You go to the top floor of Barney's where she had all her shoes. And she'd teach me about Filofax, how to insert in her little book. She'd let me smell the stationery and touch the leather. And then she wanted to know if I knew about like textiles and stuff. And I didn't know much. So she would take me to touch everything and feel everything. And it was so beautiful. And like, you know, those memories, and I actually think I had a call earlier today with a colleague and I really honestly think that retail has to go back to that because humanity needs that. I have so many windows open of things I need to buy, but I'm so annoyed on these websites and like, I'm like, click next. I can't even bother. I shop less because the online, it's overwhelming. It's too much. I love an experience and I'm not getting it on a website. No, it's true. I, you know, I own a website, but like, it's great to have it. But the same thing for me, it's like, I try to create an experience, but I know for myself, I'd rather go into a little shop or even like when I was in Italy and the Italians are so much slower than us, the way they merchandise and the way they like, you know, they close their shop. I'm going to have coffee and... And you will live while I'm gone <laughs> and you'll be yeah, there totally. when I come back. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, we have to slow that stuff down. 
And I mean, you make decisions about the kinds of stores that your brands are in, you know? So it's like, we're both, our businesses are kind of an online business, but I still have stockists and I'm considerate about the stockists because I want it to be an experience and I don't have that many in the same city. And if I do, they don't have the same thing for that express purpose. So that if somebody wants a different bag, they will go to the other store, you know, they'll go to all of them to see what they have. And then they'll have new shopping experiences, support people that are making stuff. You know, it's not just about exchange of money, but it's an exchange of energy. People are making decisions about what they're, they're making thoughtful decisions about what they're putting there. And they're making thoughtful decisions about what they're making. And then people are making thoughtful decisions about how they acquire them and who they gift them to. And I mean, that's fabulous. I agree. And I think you just mentioned something that has been bothering me in the last few years. It's like people are creating things for the wrong reasons. They're creating things because they want to be able to sell it. They heard someone sold their company for a billion dollars or a hundred million or 20 million. And they're just creating things because they're, they're hungry for to sell it out. And I never got into this business to make money. I got into it because I loved working with creators. I love meeting people from different cities, going around the world, finding things to bring into the U.S. for the consumer. Yeah, we're hunter-gatherers. Yes, I love that. And it's so painful to me when someone's like, we're building this brand because we want to sell in four years. We're building this because we have to sell within 10 years. I'm like, oh my God, I've had a great track record with brands of mine have sold. If you ask those brand founders if they were happy when they sold their brand, they would tell you something that you did not want to hear. You know, they weren't very happy with their final decision, most of them. Yeah, they might have been happy with the end result, but the the fact that they maybe couldn't do it because we got into it for a different reason. Also, this colleague of mine said, listen, some people look at success as selling their company to a big conglomerate. I see success as like, I can pay my rent, I can pay my mortgage, I can feed myself, I can travel, I can see the world and have my own business and pay myself a salary. That is success. Mm -hmm. It depends on what you see as success. For me, success was always having that gem that people can't find anywhere. Like, I hate selling to every store. I hate oversaturating a market. And unfortunately, that's a lot of our brands want that. Thankfully, we have a candle brand that still loves things very exclusive and very minimal. And that's why we sell so much. We sell more because we're in less stores. Now, if we were in every store, our overall number would be the same and it would just be played out. No, it's a very short-sighted strategy, in my opinion. Or it's not my strategy. Let's just say that. I have friends that have in their enthusiasm, they're like, why don't you manufacture here? Or you should, I have a friend that's making, you know, like flip-flops in X country and, you know, 50,000 units. And I'm like, well, I don't speak that language. I'm not here to support that economy. I can't change my design if I wanted to. I don't want there to be 50,000 units of anything. I mean, unless it's like the bottle that makes the thing, but like of Mm -hmm. mine, because it will devalue it. There's very little that I have in my wardrobe that was made in units of 50,000, maybe my Levi's, you know, but then that's okay. But, you know, but beyond that, that's not my path. That could work for somebody else that likes a lot of big box business and they're trying to do those kinds of transactions. I think that 50,000 units of anything that's not Levi's will end up in a landfill. You have to be very thoughtful of that sort of stuff. So, and also I like a certain longevity in design. And when I launched 
my bag because I was a shopper. I knew what was sort of out in the market and I had a sense of what the market could bear. And it was still at that time of it bags and everyone had like if it was a Balenciaga, they had a bag with a name and a bell and a whistle and a buckle and a zipper and a bless them all. And but I was like, oh, I've always liked this bag. And guess what? There's nothing. If a buyer sees this, they could put it amongst their other bags and it will stand alone because it's not competing with anything else that's in the marketplace. And that also makes it special. And so you don't have to have a lot of them. It will drive its own desirability. You know, in business, will you work with what you have? And then you sometimes your disadvantage is your advantage. I love that you said that your disadvantage is your advantage. Like, I'm sure of it that you probably have all these big box retailers calling you all the time wanting to sell your bag. Sometimes. Yeah, I've had that ride. Where was your last trip? Where did you go? What was your last destination that was exciting? I went to Santa Fe in October, and that was beautiful. I stayed at Jane Allison at the El Rey Court, which was fantastic. And I also did a trunk show in a lovely little shop there called La Boheme. What was nice is like I went to do the trunk show. I'd gone for vacation in the springtime, and then I went for the trunk show. The trunk show was on a Friday, so I arrived on a Wednesday and left on a Sunday. So I had time to noodle around and find places and see things and go to museums and galleries and consignment shops and see all kinds of things and get a lifetime supply of chilies and, and pignon. Oh, I love pignon. I've been burning pignon incense since my first trip to Santa Fe. My first trip was in, I was working for a company called Red Flower and they sent me to 10,000 Waves because they sold our candles there. And I remember just being like amazed. It was just magic there. That smell, the air just really lives with you. Yeah. I just moved the apartment here and then I moved into so much moving that I was like, I'm not traveling during the holidays just because during pandemic, I had an apartment in New York still, then a place in the desert, my place here. And I was just like, it's just too much. So where are you based now? I'm still here in LA, but mostly I, I gave up the New York apartment and we gave up the place in the Valley which was lovely to be out there during pandemic. I didn't know what to do with myself, but I was just amongst nature and just realized like the fundamentals in life are just like great food, great friends, family, and just spending your money on experience and on beautiful pieces. And I'm not one to buy new furniture. I buy all vintage and reupholster it. And I love, like, I don't like buying anything new. And so like, for me, it was like when... I looked at all of my stuff. I was like, wow, I'm like this eccentric old man with like pieces from like my first trip to France when I was 19. And, you know, like I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, no, they're completely sentimental, beloved. The piece is beautiful and the story is beautiful. And then you are transported back to finding it and talking to them and negotiating it and then finding the fabric for it. And it has wattage, you know. And it's alive and it makes a big difference. I think the pandemic time was very, again, it was like a turn poison into medicine kind of situation for many people because it got us off this sort of hamster trail and it made people, I mean, I found value in what I was doing. So it just amplified that. I sort of knew the purpose of why I was making what I was making. And then also at that moment, I revisited products and I made hand sanitizer. I saw. I'm dying. I should, I'm going to order one because I'm dying to try one. 
So you just use your old ingredients that you used? I made a hand sanitizer recipe, but I used like colloidal silver, but it also has castor oil. It has the strongest proof, 99 proof alcohol. It has oil of oregano and aloe. So it's super moisturizing because of the castor oil and the aloe. A lot of them that you try, the alcohol is so drying. So I mixed it with these things like the aloe is like a real sealant and the castor oil is really moisturizing. And then there's the aromatherapy blend. That was my early pandemic pivot because we lost most of our wholesale orders. You know, they placed the orders in the end of February, first week of March. And then because of the pandemic, they were like, we're not going to fulfill them. But I had orders that had come in in January that had to deliver in April. I was like, how are we going to stay open? I was like, oh, I'm going to make some sprays and we'll see what happens. And so that kept us in business, really. It made it possible so that we could manufacture the orders that we needed, the orders that needed to deliver before they closed. And then with that money, we were able to stay open. Like I had to reinvent myself as well. It was a very tricky time for all of us. And like, I literally was like, I don't want to, I couldn't furlough my employees because they all have livelihoods. And so I was like, okay, what can I do? And so I knew that I had opened a warehouse and so the warehouse stayed open. And so a lot of our brands, like one of them has an olive oil and so it kept the warehouse open. And, and then a lot of our online business, people need hand washes and hand sanitizers and shampoos and conditioners. But then I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And so I started teaching online. So I had this tech company up Northern California. And they like, they signed me up for like two workshops where I had like a few hundred students in each class and up to, it got to like much more than a few hundred in a class. And I was like, oh, I love this. And then I started giving people free consulting hours because I just wanted to keep myself busy. And whoever asked the most intelligent questions, I would give them a free hour of consulting for their brand. And then I would do Instagram lives with my brand founders. And this is how like this came about because I started doing the Instagram lives. And I found even if you reach five, 10 people, you can inspire so many people to keep going because a lot of people just want to give up because it's so hard sometimes. No, you never know which nugget's going to be the one that really turns somebody on in some kind of way. Yeah, my grandparents were, my mother's from Cuba, but my grandfather was so wise and he lost everything so many times in his life. And he always said to me, when you wake up in the morning and you're breathing, it's another chance. You're the only one that can change the way, the path, how it goes. Stops us is when we die. So like, keep going. You can't have an excuse for things. Just keep moving. And I was like, wow, what a wise man. And he always smiled and he gave me my tools. But that's why I wanted to ask you too, to anyone out there right now, I know starting their own business or their own brand, what is your words of advice to them? My first one would be, you are your own best customer. If you are your own best customer, you will be looking at every facet of that product or experience. And then you will know all the details about it because it will be satisfactory to you. And then... If you like it, you can be sure that at least, you know, a certain percentage of your friends, you know, like a 75 or 80 percent of your friends that you share these overlaps would like it. And then you can think exponentially like the market's going to bear that, you know, but you know best about your what it is you're doing. And then if you need other advice, it's always good to get other people's feedback. But again, if you're your own best customer, you'll also know if that feels right, what someone else tells you i love that and now you're making me think i'm like oh i don't think i like my website 
<laughs> well, you know, and, and again, so there's there's other things like you have to put it in the context of what it is. It's like your website is also not your personal, personal website. It's representing something that's many other people. So it has a different purpose. And so there's also mixing that purpose with also knowing your purpose in what it is you're doing. But we're talking about business and so we're talking about a product in some way, usually. So if you put yourself as the person that's going to part with their money for what it is yeah. you're offering and that person. And the thing is also people have to think some people like to project their own value on people that have money. And it's like, it's none of your business, but also everyone earned it at some point. So yeah. the money has its own wattage. And so even you want something that people with disposable income or not disposable income are going to find the value in. It's like not your place to judge where the money came from. Like, like it's only should be for this situation. The value of the thing should be worthy regardless. How they get it is not your concern. Well, in every episode, I do have a rapid fire question before we end our segment. I ask these rapid fire questions and they're just fun. Just to see what happens. Do you like facial hair or no facial hair? I'm fine with facial hair. <laughs> We're talking with yeah. um, men. <laughs> Are you a lipstick or mascara? Oh, I'm a mascara, actually. Oh, I love. Neutrals or colors? Colors. Are you a bath or shower person? In my mind, I'm a bath person, but I don't live in with the best bath. So I would say, like, in practice, I'm a shower person. But all of my childhood books were watermarked from the two bath a day. So, yeah. Oh, love. Yeah, I actually am a bath person, but I don't have a good bathtub, so I'm a shower person by... Yeah, I'm a shower by necessity. By necessity, too. From a scale from 1 to 10, how good are you keeping a secret? I'd say 9, maybe 10. That's so good. What's the one thing you can't stand? Ooh, maybe some kind of rudeness or harshness or something mean-spiritedness, miserly, like that, maybe. A nasty person. Don't like them either. <laughs> Who is your beauty icon? Karen Alexander, Gail O'Neill. They're pretty iconic. I like those two. And so last but not least, what is your favorite vacation spot? I would say right now, I'd like to be in Treasure Beach in Jamaica right about now. Are you a beach person? I am. I love the beach. I love feeling my feet on the sand and I just like the smell of the ocean. I just... My parents are both from islands, so I'm just an island boy at heart. You know, my dad's from Ghana, my mom's family's Jamaican and from Barbados. I grew up in Manhattan and I live, you know, in Los Angeles. So I've always been by a coast. I've only lived inland once and I didn't mind it. I lived in the Valley of the Berkshires and it was really beautiful and there was like some waterfalls and all that. But I realized like I really like to be around moving water. I've done my astro cartography and it's like those are the places I'm always meant to be. That's the best. So I do want everyone to know, let us know where they could find you. Where can they find your bags? What is your website? Like this is the time for you to plug yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my name is Agnes Badu. And so I have a website that's agnesbadu.com. That's A-G-N-E-S-B like boy, A-2-D's like David, two O's.com. You can find me on Instagram, which is at Agnes, and it's spelled A-G-N-3-S. 
If you're in Los Angeles, we're doing holiday shopping hours, so you can go on the website and drop us a line for appointments. I love that. Last but not least, is there any new project you're working on that we should all know about before we go and close up this episode? Well, I'm doing these great phone and glasses cases that are super popular and excellent stocking stuffers because they are small and mighty and they come in many different colors. And so that's been a really fun, successful Christmas item because everyone's always, where are my glasses? Where are my phone? So now you can wear them on you. Well, Agnes, you're always so inspiring and so beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Oh, I loved every second of it. I'm gonna have, we're going to have to meet up in person and have dinner soon. I would love that to catch up properly. Yes, thank you so much. I would look forward to that. Thank you so much for listening to Living in a Material World with our guest today, Agnes Batu. Oh, what a beautiful soul. And I love her vibrations. She just inspires me. I can feel her energy through the screen. Now, go out there and order one of her bags or pick up one of her bags or one of her stock lists because her bags are genuinely a keepsake for generations to come. And they make any person you give them to the happiest person ever. So think about it. Check her out. And again, thank you so much for listening to Living in a Material World with me. Ciao.